Well, today, I had a risky walk, a risky travel time to get here. I live over in TTY, and uh, today, usually I take the subway, and I get to walk, and I get to walk up in the bushes over there, and because I live in TTY, anytime I get to walk where trees are, it's wonderful. But it's so hot, I thought if I came here, I'd look all sweaty, and even though I did choose the kind of shirt that doesn't show sweat, um, I thought it'd be best to see if I can get a ride, so I did. And the ride required me to, uh, to just walk past the subway station across the street and into the next complex. It was risky. Now, if you would have watched me, you would have said, oh, yeah, I know the risky part. Because after I walked past the subway over the bridge, the gate to lead into that apartment complex had construction fences by it because they were digging deep holes on the other side. Now, and and the only other way to get in is a long way around the other side. So I went to the end of the construction fences where they just had the the, the wire, the, the iron fence, and was able to get over that one, walk down the edge of the stairs on the outside of them, jump down to the edge of the ditch, walked up the pile of dirt and over to the side. And you might have said, oh, that was the risky part. Well, actually, it wasn't. The risky part was I had to walk past the subway station. I never walk past the subway station. Every time I go east from my place, I'm getting on the subway. Trust me, I have more important things to do than think about where I'm going. So I will go to the subway station. This morning as I left, I said, don't go to the subway station. Don't go to the subway station. That's the risk. The risk is, will I actually be able to be thinking about where I want to end up on this one? Good news is I did. Amazing Grace. So familiar. It's, it's a risk to sing Amazing Grace. Because you know it, and you know it so well. And for a lot of us, it comes prepackaged with warm emotions. We don't need to think as we sing it. And so what I wanted to do was to catch your attention a little bit and come back to that second verse. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." How many times have we sung that? When was the last time you really thought about that? Don't we generally live our lives thinking the experience of God's grace removes all fear? Isn't that what God's grace is supposed to do? Remove fear from us. And yet, here, we are celebrating accurately, it was God's grace that teaches us to fear. So, what is it to fear God? Not a new phrase for any of us who have been in this business of Christianity long. We have heard that phrase very, very Frequently, what is it to fear the Lord? Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Today I would like to talk about fearing God. Not a new term, but if you were provoked at least just a little over how long it's been since you thought through the phrase about grace teaching you to fear, and then the current question is, 
is that a current job of grace, God's grace, to teach us to fear? And if it is, then tell me, how have you grown in fear this past week, this past year? Because if that is a job of grace, if that is a desire of God, then we need to think on that. So when we ask the question, what is the fear of the Lord? The first thing that comes to my mind is the English grammar part. Is that a noun or a verb? Is the fear of the Lord something like a noun that you have? You got the fear of the Lord? I got it. And if so, you get it once. I got it. Is the fear of the Lord have a verb component to it? Meaning, fearing God is an action. Which then entails the question, if you aren't specifically trying to perform the action of fearing God, maybe you won't fear God, or at the very least, maybe you will not be growing in the fear of God. I would like to give a, a warning. And the warning is, I would like to share from Scripture today some thoughts on the fear of God. I hesitate to speak much at all about God in describing who God is. Other than reciting verses which he has given us, I'm comfortable there. But anything else, I am very wary of that. In Job chapter 42, after a long and arduous struggle with injustice in his life and everything else, Job comes to a conclusion when he says, all of these comments I made about God and about life and justice and what's right and what's owed me and what's good, I spoke of things I do not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And this morning I want to speak of things I do not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. I hope at the conclusion of this morning, you will be full of, or at least have a few thoughts of, well, yes, Craig, but, you said this, but you're missing this part. I hope you are. If you're not that way, then I don't think you're thinking. Job understood the seriousness of the situation when we speak in God's name. In 1 Corinthians 8, Solomon is dedicating the temple. This temple they had spent years doing. It was magnificent. It was gold. It was huge. It was made exactly like God wanted. It was unique. It was the only one in the world. People would travel to see this temple. And yet Solomon's dedication prayer was this. As marvelous and as beautiful of a dwelling place for you that we have made for you, God, right up front, we will admit, you don't dwell here. We understand that. This is not your dwelling place. This is your meeting place. And today, maybe, rather than explaining God to you, I would like to present a couple of Thoughts and truth, which might be a meeting place 
for you and God this week. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, not just the result. For people like me, that's significant. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I would tend to think of it, well, the fear of the Lord is the result of wisdom, which means I'm going to sit here and listen to you talk. Or I'm going to read the Bible and say, okay, God... Convince me. Convince me you're real. Convince me you're really there. Or if you're trying to, I'll say, convince me. And if you can convince me, then I will fear God. And yet right up the front, God says, the very beginning of your trip of wisdom is fearing me. And for those of you who are struggling, wanting to be wise, wanting to grow in wisdom, legitimately, you don't know what to do. You have a difficult marriage. You have a job choice. You have a crisis. You have a medical diagnosis that has many options, and you're not sure what to do, and you need wisdom. You don't know how to respond to this. You don't know how to stop this habit. You don't know how to start this habit. It's okay to talk about it, to ask for some advice. I just want you to know if you are not seeking to grow in the fear of God, then you will not get the true wisdom you need to deal with whatever you're talking about. I'm going to give a couple of illustrations, which again are very limited. Don't take them too far. There's just one point from them I would like to make the rest of it probably doesn't apply very well to God. I want to talk about gravity. Very common topic. We all uh, are involved in gravity right now. Gravity did not ask you this morning if you would like to become involved. Gravity never asked for your permission. Gravity is not a good idea. It's a law. That's it. You don't discuss it. You don't vote on it. You don't wait and say... You convinced me about that. You know, I don't know about this gravity. That balloon is going up. And you say, oh, you know, I'm not. Obviously, we'd say, well, that, that's foolish. There's a lot of things you get to learn about gravity. There's a lot of ways you can use gravity to your benefit. There's a lot of ways that you get to live in the midst of gravity. But you're not going to get anywhere in the world of gravity if you consider it a good idea that you might be involved in, but maybe not, and occasionally you will, or only if someone convinces, I'm sorry, that really doesn't matter. And I think in a similar way, sometimes people want to say, well, you know, God, as he presents himself in the Bible here and there, I don't quite get this, and I don't get this part in the creation part in this, and so um, I, I'm just holding back on my conclusion about God. All right. That, that's fine. I just want you to know, though, you are living in a God-created, God-ordained, God-run world, according to what God says. Whether you want to admit that or not. Having said gravity just is, my disclaimer, that illustration is limited. 
God is not just a force. He is not the Star Wars force. He is not karma. He is not yin and yang that just exist. God is other than that. He is a person. But yet his characteristics are just as true and thorough and real as, in our experience, gravity is. What do young children need to learn about gravity? I think they need to learn how to fear gravity. Isn't that what we do? We want them to learn, don't lean over the balcony, don't step off this. So we try to teach them to fear gravity. Probably husbands and wives have different ways of doing that. I think watching them fall off the couch, crawl off the couch, is a decent way of them learning. I mean, maybe if there's a pillow there or something. In fact, we would say it would be the foolish parent who never, ever, ever allows their child to experience negative outcomes, the full normal outcomes of gravity. And so we put fences up and we put railings up because they're not ready to grow in understanding the fear of gravity. Now, when we speak of fear, well, what, what do we mean by fear? In English, again, it's, it's a pretty broad term. In the Old Testament, sometimes fear literally means, the word used, is terror. That kind of fear. Being in terror over that. That's not a bad thing. I think I would like my young child to be terrified looking out a ninth-story window with no screen. I, I would like that. I would like their stomach to go in knots and say no. Again, one of my goals for this session is at least you might begin to think differently of fear and may think of it not as an enemy, but may think of it you might treat it as a friend, but, of course, it doesn't matter how you decide to treat it, but that you would give honor and respect to fear, just like you want your child to give honor and respect to gravity. You want your child to give honor and respect to water. We had a pool at our house. Two of my boys, when they were young and could barely walk, they would just walk right in the pool. They had no fear. My daughter just would prefer not to get in water at all. So my, my boys had to learn a measure of fear. And you let them fall in, and how long do you keep them there? And whatever methodology you use, I don't know, but I think you would agree we want them to. Well, I don't want my child to be afraid of water and all of this, and, and then they'll miss out on fun, and that's, that's true. We don't want them to have a debilitating fear. We want them to have an enriching fear, which means they get to understand what water is and the potentials for water and the dangers of water and honor and respect those. Growing up in San Diego, in California, by the beach, I, I spent a lot of time in the water messing around, and it was a casual thing to mess around. And we were out there and we said, hey, let's, 
let's go over to the cove and jump in the water and put our mask on and let's just go snorkeling, and that was fine. Thirty years after I did that, a friend who regularly did that said, hey, let's do that. And I said, sure. And so I put a mask on. He said, eh, sorry, I only got one fin, so, um, you know, good luck. And I had no problem. And I had a problem, all right, because my body wasn't the same one as before. Maybe I should have appreciated a little more the dynamics of the fearfulness of water and waves. Fear in the Bible is more than just a dread or a terror. Fear in the Bible also includes wonder. Wonder. Awe. Again, when I was young and they had storm surf and would say, Stay away from the beaches. Hey, that's when you go. And and again, it was not huge. It just was unruly. I tell you what, I, I would not go now. I have fear of that, but, oh, they are wonder. I will drive down to the beach to watch storm surf and say, whoa, look at that. And since there always will be teenage guys to say, look at those fools, but I probably shouldn't think that or enjoy that. It's okay to think that. Maybe the enjoyment is wrong. Fear includes wonder. During summers when I taught, for a number of summers, I I painted houses. Occasionally, on a three-story house, I would have to climb up to the third story to paint window frames. I am fearful of heights. I, I don't like it emotionally. Second story is fine. Third story is emotionally difficult. I had to make a decision. Well, do I say no? And it was like, you know, I think it would be good for me to face my fears. And I also think it wasn't stupid to do that. You know, got a ladder, planted it, and, and did that. So in the realm of fear, we do have dread, we do have terror. We are not saying they should not exist. Rather, we want to embrace the dread and the terror and also embrace the wonder of it. Someone said that fear combines... A sense of shrinking back, shrinking back in fear and of drawing close in awe. I, I like that. Deep fear. Part of me says I need to stay away from that. Part of me is attracted to that. Whoa, the Grand Canyon. Whoa, you're there, and it's like this is deep, and, and, and it's like, no. But yet part of me wants to climb the railing and get closer and just say, whoa. When you think of fear in regards to God, don't toss away that somehow the fear that grace teaches you does not include dread. Just like the teaching we have on fearing water or fearing electricity or fearing heights 
We, we really need to keep that sense of dread because all three of those things always carry with it the capability of serious problems in our life. But we also want to embrace the wonder of it, which saves us from just always running away from fearful things. Isaiah 6, if you're familiar with that, Isaiah has a vision and he sees God and he gives a description in chapter 6 of, of just what he sees, God on his throne. And his response to seeing that is, woe is me. He saw God and his response is, I am in trouble. I am in trouble. This is the... The guy who foolishly paddles out into storm waves and sees a 20-footer come ready to crash on him and says, Whoa, I'm in trouble. This is Isaiah's response to seeing God. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. It's very appropriate for someone seeing God in his fullness and holiness to look at himself and his sin and say, there is trouble here. I am in big trouble. I'm in the presence of God, and yet I'm sinful in his holiness. That's appropriate response. But I hope you notice that was a fear that included dread and terror, but it also included awe and respect because when God said, I need a volunteer to go somewhere, Isaiah was not paralyzed by that fear of, fear of God. A proper fear of God does, does not paralyze. It does make say, well, I don't want to do it wrong, and he might get mad at me. That, that is all dead wrong. The proper fear of God says, you want me? Of course, I will respond to you. Living in fear means I'm living in the knowledge that I am not in control. That, that's a working definition of fear, I think, when, when I'm conscious of it. I, I do not live right now in, in a conscious, debilitating fear of gravity on the edge of this precipice because, in my estimation, I can handle it. Craig can handle it. I can handle the drop. No problem. So I don't live in that sense of felt fear because I feel I'm in control. Fear involves a realization that I am not in control. Second Chronicles chapter 20, Jehoshaphat just heard that uh, there was, they were going to be invaded by a huge nation and a huge army. And uh, he came to God with the appropriate fear. Whoa, I count that army. I count what we have. We are in trouble. That's appropriate. He then calculated all of his personal options that he had on the table and came up with nothing. And so he took his dread and terror of that situation and he took it to God. Because, you see, Jehoshaphat also had a fear of God. Jehoshaphat also had a dread of God because he knew who God was. 
We do not know what to do, God, but our eyes are upon you. May your fears, however legitimately in a season they have come to you and you realize you need to embrace them, And as you look around and see no resources, may they draw your eyes up before your heavenly Father. Fear is a gift that keeps me in touch with reality. Fear is a gift that keeps me in touch with reality. And according to this, the fear of the Lord also helps me to grow in understanding who God is. I had experience when I was a 12-year-old, which is a very minor experience. My dad would not know what happened. I don't think I ever told him, but after all these years, I still vividly remember it. All we were doing is uh, we were at a busy street in a big city, and we were at a street corner waiting for the red light, and I was looking down here at something that was happening, and my dad was next to me, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and he went like this, gently. That's it, just slowly. And I moved back. And then this bus pulled right in the bus stop, right there in front of us. Whoa, I hadn't seen the bus. I pictured my head bouncing down the street. All right. That, that was my first response was, whoa. Okay. A, a non-event, it probably really wouldn't have hit me in such. But I tell you what went through my mind right there. Wow. What if? My response to my dad giving me guidance back would have been to rebel against him and jerk away from him. Whoa. And literally, I feel the pit in my stomach of that realization. That is experiencing to me the awe, the horror and awe of disobedience. That's where it takes you. Destruction. Utter destruction. What a father to pull me back and save me from that. And my point here is this. You you know the facts. You know Jesus died on the cross. You know he died on the cross for your sins and he paid the penalty for you and such. And and maybe for those of us that hear that when we're young and and we're very young and we say, yes, that's true and we believe it and and that's, that's good. Maybe we have not experienced the dread and terror of sin and what it does in our life as much as others. And because we haven't, we have a lesser view then of God. God's the guy who addresses the minor issues of your life. So what's the moral of this story? You're saying, if you haven't sinned much, go out and sin a lot. Actually, that's almost what Paul seems to be saying in Romans 6. The answer is no to that, but somehow the growing realization of who I am and my sinfulness and the resulting consequences and power of sin that I submit myself to, that growing realization, when I turn to God with that, is only going to result in him having more praise and more honor and glory from me and me experiencing that. And looking at the cross, when I'm more keenly aware of what my sin has done 
And then I look at the cross and see what Jesus did. More deeply than ever, I say, wow, you really do love me, Jesus, that much. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. Matthew 10. Jesus says, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This was his response to a statement that says, hey, followers of Jesus, do you know what's coming? Persecution. People that are not going to like you and are going to want to hurt you and kill you. And what is his encouragement? And we might say, well, Grace would say, he'll save me from those events. But no, he just said they're coming. His encouragement is, when they're coming for you, in that power, and you're out of control because you can't stop them and you don't know what to do, this is what I want you to do. That fear that you feel in that situation, I want you to be reminded of a deeper and greater fear. And that is, there is one who can not only kill bodies, but who also can destroy souls in hell. And that is your God. Fear Him. I may have already mentioned a powerful statement in my life on the issue of me failing and my fear of failure. When I read it, it was... I, uh, I, I do not fear failure as much as I fear being successful at something that really doesn't matter. And for me, literally, when I fear failure at something, and, and I'm, 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 do I back off? I stop and I say, does this matter? Yes, it matters. Am I doing this right? Well, I don't know. Did I prepare well on it? Well, I don't know, but it matters. And because it matters, it's worth failing at if need be. Grace teaches us to fear. In the book of Acts, chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira were killed by God because they lied to the Holy Spirit. The end result was great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is not an uncommon argument that people bring and say, well, look at this God of yours. You know, they told a little lie and he killed them. What kind of God is that? Okay, now we're back to almost where I started at the beginning. What they're trying to do is take human wisdom, and then they're going to judge God by it and decide whether God really should have done this. Versus God just making a statement out of love. This was grace, ladies and gentlemen. The brand new church, the brand new series of believers. How do we get along with each other? And in great grace, God taught them to fear. Don't take lightly things that you say in the name of God. Don't take lightly anything you claim that God says. Don't take lightly telling a lie. That's what grace does. It gives us an appropriate 
fear. Well, living in fear means I'm not in control, but I'm not in control, but I know someone who is. Romans 8.31. What shall we say in response to all of these things, all of these things that can happen to us that we are so out of control? And this is what we get to say. If God is for us, who can be against us? My last point, I'm commanded, I'm invited by God to grow in the fear of him as he reveals himself to me. God invites me to grow in fear. He commands me to grow in fear. But his command is an invitation. Craig, would you like to grow and develop in your life? Yes, I would. Well, Craig, grow in the fear of the Lord. And that's why if you want to assess the last week of your life or the last year of your life and you could say, hey, how's it going? And you could say, well, I learned this skill. I I stopped sinning. I cut down my sin a little bit here and I did this and this and that's all fine. But underneath all of those behaviors you did or didn't do, underneath all of them, the basis, because this is the foundation of all wisdom and decisions you make, is the fear of the Lord is the beginning. My brother and sister, did you grow in the fear of the Lord? That's the question we get to ask each other. In Exodus chapter 20, Moses said to the people, they were in front of Mount Sinai, there were earthquakes, there was fire coming out of the top of it, it was a very scary time. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, God has come to test you. So that the fear of God will keep you from singing, sinning. I like this one. It said, wait a minute. Don't be afraid because we want you to learn how to fear. Uh, Wait, wait, what's going on? Don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will grow in you so that you then can behave in the way you really want. If uh, if this were not summertime and I gave you a real message, I would have a conclusion for you. But it's summertime, all right? It's attendance light, sermon light. So, I have some reflections for you. And again, in the fall, come back, and when I say reflections, I'll tell you my reflections, but it's summertime. So these are for you, not for me. Here's an interesting thought on the fear of God. 2 Kings 17. So while these nations feared the Lord, they also served their idols. That's interesting. They feared God and served idols. And and of course, I'm really not as interested in the history part of this as I am in my own heart. According to this, there's some measure of fearing God that can happen while I also serve idols. I wonder what that might look like in your life. Maybe a good thing to reflect on. Nehemiah chapter 7-2 talks about the fear of God. Um, I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanai because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. 
Here was a guy, Nehemiah said, hey, good, 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 whoa, I want this man. Why? He knows, he fears God more than most of us do. What does that look like, to fear God than most? And yes, I know, you can say that statement and you can pervert it and it can become a competition and you can say, I'm going to be the God-fearer, the best, I'm going to win the award, and obviously that's all wrong. My question still hangs, though. Here was a man who had a reputation that he feared God more. And my last reflection to think about, 1 John 4:18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. But the one who fears is not made perfect in love. And it's like, well, wait a minute. I thought we were supposed to fear, but we just said there's no fear in love. And it's like, huh, look at that. I wonder how the fear that grace teaches us, the fear we get to grow on, the fear God invites us to, interrelates with the love we get to experience from God. May you think on these things. Father, we've opened your word. You have invited us to fear you. You've invited us. You've showed us. You revealed yourself to us. In many manifestations, in many ways that we look at and and we are in shock and we are in awe and we cringe. And yet, something within our heart is attracted to that. The awe and the splendor and we want to be a part of that. Teach us. Give us faithful hearts that will respond. And grow in your fear as we grow in your love. And all for your glory. Amen.